and welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. I'm going to change the format today and I'm going to step out the host's chair and I'm going to hand over to a really good friend of mine, Riku, the seeker of truth, Hakler. Um, I probably said his surname wrong, so he's going to pull me up for it when he comes on. But the reason I wanted to do this was it's just a chance to flip the format a bit. I think sometimes I talk at people a bit too much. And I know people sit there and go, I'd love to get Terry on the ropes. So, you know, I've always said I'm willing to, to, to face these sorts of challenges, do something different and creative. So today, Riku might, yeah, he has got a number of questions. I haven't seen them. I don't know what's coming. I'm looking forward to the challenge of being able to react and respond in the moment. But follow him on social media at LeadWright. That's his Twitter handle. I think it's the same on Instagram as well. He is literally the ultimate expert on all the sort of media-based skullduggery that happens in boxing. So anything you need to know about that side of things, he's the guy to get hold of. And anything else in general. Like, you'll be surprised at how many, how many bodies he keeps hidden from the media. But without further ado, welcome to Riku. Riku, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Uh, just like everybody else, hopefully enjoying the sunshine and staying positive through these challenging times. How are you, Terry? Hopefully spending it at home. Yeah, you know how I am, man. I'm <laughs> just... You see, it's weird. This suits me because all I really do is I get up, I work from home. When that's done, I can go for a reasonably long walk, go for a run. You know, always trying to get my ten to 15,000 steps in. So today, had a lovely run. Just for anyone that's looking for somewhere to buy, if you can get somewhere Riverside in Brentford... Like, I, I ran past it earlier today. It just looked really nice in the summer. I imagine it's probably pretty shit in February, but it looked really nice today as I was running past. So if anyone's looking for somewhere to live, have a look there because that, that kind of looked like a good place to start off your, your property journey. Yeah, I think house prices will be impacted. So if you can buy for cheap, then uh, that will be quite a good spot to buy. Um yeah, I mean, first I want to say thank you to you for keeping all the boxing fans entertained with your podcast through these times. I know there's been challenges with a number of other podcasts in terms of creating interesting, engaging content when there actually isn't anything happening. So thanks to you for that and uh, much appreciated. It's weird. Um, and I've said this before. We've just kept moving forward like... I think circumstances sort of bent themselves to where we were because like if you build a platform based on video content, shouts out to IFL, like I know it's not easy for them, but I think we all need to be just, just tip our hats off to IFL because I was thinking about this earlier. I don't think you'd be able to do yeah. long form conversational boxing content if IFL hadn't kind of made that palatable so even those things like the hour-long things with eddie hearn and that sort of thing so i know i give people a hard time in the media some of it's deserved well actually all of it's deserved but you also have to tip your hat to ifl for for doing their thing and keeping us entertained as well uh it's one of the things i've said about ifl that i don't expect ifl to be like Newsnight. that's maybe where guys like me come into it IFL is like blind date for us, man. It's a bit of entertainment. Have a little laugh, a joke, and a chuckle for the boxing fans. And maybe, maybe one day, you know, there are some challenging questions. But I just want to tip my hat off to them because I think we forget that before IFL, there wasn't really anything. And we've all kind of ridden on that wave to a certain extent. 
Yeah, I, I think with IFL it's interesting because actually Arsenal fan TV has partly spawned from IFL, uh, but that type of content where you interview people uh, and you get they, you know, reactions on things and you trace around press conferences, it's quite hard to mimic in other sports because it's so much more controlled. So having worked with football clubs on the PR side, it's um, interesting because even the players that are put up for interview, those are pre-selected. The media outlets are there. That, that's pre-selected. Uh, the length of the interview, so whether it's two minutes to ask questions, that's already selected. And the access that sporting company or the sporting broadcasters need is more crucial than it is in boxing media in the sense that if you're the BBC and Sir Alex Ferguson bans you, um, you know, the FA can find Manchester United for that. But if you're a small, you know, Arsenal fan TV and you interview Arsenal players, if you rub them up the wrong way and the club's press secretary bans you, then um, there's nothing you can do about it. And, and I was speaking to a uh, head of communications at a Premier League club recently, and we we're talking about um, the athletic, and they said, interestingly, well, they have to keep us happy because they have to cover us. And that stuff, it holds true in boxing to an extent, but these people in boxing aren't important enough to general public that they actually... They don't care whether Josh Taylor's on the platform or, you know, if Dillian White doesn't want to speak to you or something like that. They can always be immersed apart from the few boxers who are Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua in this country. I think one of the interesting things will be what the rebound is like when, when boxing fires up again. Because the longer this goes on, I think the longer fans have to get used to the idea that we need something harder hitting because... Look at us now. We're all struggling to identify boxing content. Uh, look, a prime example. The other night I was watching ESPN, who are doing a fantastic job with, with their content right now. But they've got a show called Peyton's Places, where Peyton Manning, one of the all-time great quarterbacks in NFL history, is basically just going around celebrating 100 years of the NFL. They did an episode on NFL players that took up boxing. And I thought... This is the best boxing content I have seen since, since sport was locked down. And it comes from an NFL perspective. And what the beautiful thing was they got George Foreman in to, to give his view on some of the guys. Um, and I just thought, wow, they, they don't leave any angle unexplored. That's what I like about them. Yeah, I think what boxing, the problem with creating content has always been the short-termism. So you create content to promote a specific events rather than the sport as a whole. Uh, there isn't, as we always talk about, there isn't a league or anybody isn't actually there to grow the sport. And what that means in terms of creating content is ESPN, once they have the deal with the NFL for the next six years, it's in their interest to create engaging content to get more people to sign up for that. But with somebody like The Zone, for example, they should have been ahead of the curve and creating content which does not relate to fights or fighters. It's specifically about boxing. It's about what they've done, um, you know, behind the scenes stuff. So I'm sure a lot of people have watched Thunder Until I Die season one and season two just came out. I was saying to someone today that wouldn't it be interesting if Matchroom would have created something where they follow them for a year, go through all the different events, 
interview the boxers, follow the ups and the downs and kind of give an insight to the business of the sport and what happens. But boxing, unlike other sports, has taken this weird stance where everything has to be done behind closed doors. You can't air sparring footage. You can't talk about tactics, what happened here by... So nobody actually gets anything that they want. Everybody just gets the same generic stuff, which doesn't engage fans for the long term. I think I've been saying it for years. Like the the grey head motherfuckers killed the sport, and like the seeds of its death were sown a long time ago. When they, you know, because the biggest nonsense, like you're right, the biggest nonsense I've ever heard in boxing is what goes on in sparring or what goes on in the gym stays in the gym. It's the stupidest shit ever. Because let's be honest, we pay pay-per-view prices to watch people punch each other. The next best thing is to see people punch each other in sparring. Now, I'm not saying reveal yeah. all sparring footage, but if you're building up a narrative, there's no, there's no harm in having sparring footage there. Like, because eventually it all leaks out anyway, right? So, th- so this yeah. thing that it's sacrosanct is wrong. It annoys me because I think the greatest boxing stories are always the gym stories. But people want to keep them to themselves. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a boxer and you're struggling for money. Like the one time you could elevate yourself is by saying, look, I'll give you an insight into my camp. Prime example, Chris Eubank Jr. He doesn't subscribe to that. Eubank Jr. will show you anything. And like he'll put the footage out before he fights. Whereas if you remember Carl Froch was putting that sparring footage with Eubank Jr., we saw more of it after he retired than when he was fighting. And I was like, this is just yeah. ridiculous. But what was interesting, I was going to come to that footage, the Froch Eubank Jr. sparring footage, was obviously it was manipulated to make Froch look bad, which I understand why you do that from a tactical point of view. But that sparring footage, in my mind, made Chris Eubank Jr. a legitimate fighter because we watched him spar against uh, one of Britain's best fighters in the last 10, 20 years, and he held his own, and it made him look very good. And I think sparring footage can work both ways. So if you're a sparring partner, you're doing well, that helps your profile. And if you're a boxer and you are, uh, you know, you're on top of your game, that just gives insight that fans really want. So there's nothing to stop doing that. And that actually brings me to my first question, which is, why do you think boxing hasn't evolved much as a sport? So the training methods have remained fairly stagnant. Uh, the tactics and the ways how fighters fight haven't evolved a lot. We basically, one of the only sports where nothing has changed in the last 30, 40 years. Everything is, you might add some strength and conditioning or nutrition into it, but actually what you see in the ring and how you train fighters has remained fairly stagnant. So it's all very innovative sport. Oh, uh, so... Ooh, that, that, so that's a pretty, it's a pretty big question. So I think if you go back to the days of your Jack Johnsons, for example, you can see in the video footage the the stance and so forth is quite different. And more importantly, they had a different concept of what a round was. A round was defined by when someone was knocked down, for example. And so you had yeah. different tactics then. It was more offensive with less of a regard for defense compared to where we're at now. And then what happens, as with everything else, you get someone who suddenly goes, I can attack and defend. So then when you get to like the 1930s and you're looking at guys like Henry Armstrong and so forth and evolving into Sugar Ray Robinson, you had what I call guys who had that, that craft because these guys were fighting hundreds of times. So it's not like it is now. 
you are fighting multiple times every year. And so part of that is you've got to manage your body, right? And so, so yeah. the tactics then become hit and don't get hit. And we use that as a maxim now to say don't get knocked out. But actually hit and don't get hit means you can fight again in two weeks. Yeah. So actually it became a, yeah. an essential way to sustain your career because you could stay active by not getting hit. So it rewarded people who had ring craft. And so that ring craft then evolves. And in the 50s and the 60s, you see the zenith of that. So guys like Georgie Benton, Dick Tiger. I know people talk about Nicolino Locke, the, the Argentinian guy. So you see that, that defensive master, the, the ability to roll your shoulders, the dipping, the rolling, you know, all of that stuff. Like, that's why people talk about those fighters from about 55 to about 68 as being yeah. the exemplars of that style because that came out of the need to fight multiple times. And then what happened again was you started to have, in the 60s, the Olympians started to come through and make names as professionals. And that coincided with the number of fights that fights were having decreasing. So now it was rewarding the athletes. So the guy who could just peak for a 12-rounder, rest for a while, and peak again. And if we look at the heavyweights, it's no coincidence that you had Ali, Olympic champion, world champion, Frazier, Olympic champion, world champion, George Foreman, Olympic champion, world champion, in rapid succession. Because it rewarded that yeah. kind of athletic guy. And like, look, if you look at Ali's career, and I know he lost three years of it, but he had like, what, 70-odd fights, I'm guessing? I'm, I'm estimating. But it, it's, it's in yeah. that sort of high number. But that's not the 100-odd that Ray Robinson had. And it's not the 20-something that guys like David Hay ended up having. You know, it's not... So the volume of fights has gone down, which has meant, actually, you don't need to be as crafty in the ring anymore. And it's rewarding the athletes more. Because if you only fight twice a year, you only need to peak twice a year. Joshua would box yeah. completely differently if he had to fight six or seven times a year. He's not trying to get involved in a, in a slugfest. He's not trying to get involved in a war. And maybe that's what we need to do is make these guys fight more often. And we'll see a more skillful fighter because now you're thinking, okay, I'm fighting in January, but I know I've got a fight in April. So I can't be there just trying to bang out and hope I can recover because it's a short career style. So that's almost like a summary in how the tactics have evolved at a macro level. I also yeah. think you get what I call the ideological view. So when Ali came, you know, the kids that watched Ali would have been guys like Sugar Ray Leonard, you see, and Tommy Hearns. Yeah. So then you've got, you got to wait 18 years after Ali makes his impact globally. And what year are we into now? We're into like 80 to 82. Who were the names we were talking about then? Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson, influenced. Same way that you know Mayweather saw Pernell Whitaker. And then he saw yeah. his dad, Roger. He saw, no, his, his dad, Floyd Sr. He saw his uncle, Roger. So then you fast forward how many years? 15, 16 years? Now you've got Floyd. So, so there, are, there are marquee fighters and then they influence people. It's the same thing, you know, when Mike Tyson came out, people tried to fight like Mike Tyson. Well, if you think about... Going to Mike Tyson, if I'm correct, he fought about 18 times in the span of a year, in the first year of his career. So why didn't then people adopt that mentality of let's keep our fighters very active, 
fighting, lots of fights in their first few years, not only to build up a record and showcase their talent, but actually to keep them learning. So actually now we have the opposite where fighters in theory are learning in the gym for long period of time. So they might be fighting three, four times a year, but in the downtime, they're learning in the gym rather than actually going from camp to camp to camp like Tyson did. Like so, that never really caught on. Because no, not many people have multi-millionaire backers like Mike did. So Mike never had to put his hand in his pocket. Mike Tyson never had to sell a ticket. He had Bill Caton backing him. So essentially, Mike was employed to fight, right? So they could just pay opponents. Yeah. And if you remember, these weren't what I'd call high-class opponents they were getting. They were just getting journeymen in for Mike to knock out, right? And then they, they just started to evolve the quality of it. But that helps. Look, let's pick a name. If I took Eric McConzo now and I was a billionaire, I could pay for Eric to fight 20 times this year. Because the opponents won't cost me that much. And that's what yeah. I did with Mike. But would Eric want to go through that? I don't know. That, that's different. You know, Mike had that mindset of he'll do whatever it takes to be world champion. And actually, maybe he burnt himself out doing that because he didn't have a, what I call a long peak. If you think about no. it. He no, won, he didn't. He won the world title when it was like 37th fight. Yeah. So it's about his 37th fight. And then, then now look at, now look, yeah, 86 to probably the end of 89 is Mike's peak. How many times did he fight then? Eight, nine? And then it's, all, yeah. it, it's, it's downhill from there. Now, I'm not going to say he crashed or he fell off a cliff, but it was downhill. Present, from present, yeah, I think the present sentence he was also meant, though. yeah, but I mean, well, Mike, it's complex because you remove customers out of the equation and you probably remove the only thing that kept him disciplined. Not necessarily. I, th I think people use that as a crutch because Cus didn't keep him disciplined. Cus just kept a lot of things suppressed. Mike was a loose cannon under Cus. We forget this. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, Teddy Atlas talks about this a lot. Kevin Rooney, they all do. So, so Mike wasn't an angel under Cus Demato. The, the, the reality was what he did from about 1980 to 89 was so intense it truncated his that was that was Mike's career the 80s were Mike's career because he you got to look at it in terms of training load his was insane fight load was pretty insane for someone so young so they they burnt out the asset I don't think Mike was ever destined to be boxing in his 30s and the only, the only reason he did was because he blew most of the 300 million that he made in his peak yeah, that's true. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, that brings me to another interesting question. You know, some fighters are able to do quite well with little amateur pedigree, and others like Tom Stalker, Paddy Barnes, fight a long, long, you know, long period of time in the amateurs. And then the view is when they don't make in the pros that they've burnt out or they've adapted to the amateur style too much or they just have sort of used, if, if you think about boxing as an energy bar of 100, so if you spend 80 of those in the amateur career, that means that you don't have much left in the pro career. So what's your view on sort of, does a long amateur pedigree hinder you 
at a pro level or is it more the age when you turn over? Um, we could ask Vasily Lomachenko. We could ask Alexander Usyk. We could ask Artur Beterbiev. We could, we could ask all these people who are walking examples of what an amateur pedigree does. But let's unpick it properly. Not many people get to the top of this game without an amateur background. Not many. And I know people say, oh, what about Joshua? Joshua fought 40 times as an amateur, as a heavyweight. That's pretty much enough because heavyweights are essentially jab, backhand, lead hook. That's it, right? There's no craft. They might throw in an uppercut every so often, but there's no real ring craft to being a heavyweight in the modern era. So 40 bouts is enough. As you slide down the weights, you need that weight of experience behind you because there are far more decision points in the fight. So if a heavyweight's throwing 40 punches around, maybe there's 60 or 70 decision points in that round for the opponent, right? But you move down the weights, you're getting to 150, 200 decision points. That's when you need the experience. And is that because there's more phases of attack in each round? So you're expected to... You know, uh, attack more, or you expect to defend more because that, you are. There's punch outputs are a lot higher, and the speed. It's simpler. It's simpler, Riku. It's just that smaller people move around a lot more, and you have to just react to it. Big people don't move around as much, but remember, it's the same. It's like the reflexes are the same. Point one of a second for a heavyweight. Point one of a second for a featherweight. But the featherweight's having to react to. 200 more moves in the round than the heavyweight is but it's the same reaction time pretty much so the heavyweight's actually got more time yeah because it's a slower pace so they don't have to do as much that that's that's really what it is when you strip it down now what does the amateur pedigree give you opportunities to make decisions opportunities to get them wrong without the world watching you look at Conor ben i want to use Conor ben as an example We've watched Conor Ben yeah. make all of his mistakes live on TV. Now, I've had his amateur background verified by friends in Australia, so I'm willing to accept that. But that was only 19 bouts. And Australia is not really a high standard for amateur boxing. Sorry, guys, but it's not. So <clears> now you come to the UK, and we're watching you make your mistakes. Pay no, you made that mistake live on TV. Normally, you'd have made that mistake at the Roundhouse in Dagenham. Or you'd have made that at the TA Army Center or the Hayes Working Men's Club. You would have made those mistakes by being undercooked and not taking someone seriously. And then by the time you've come to the pros, you understand what it is to be switched on. So when they talk about the, the, the amateurs being your apprenticeship, it is. Because in the amateurs, you understand what happens when you don't make weight. You understand what happens when you're late for a weigh-in. You understand what happens when you don't do your running. You understand what happens when you're not consistent with your training. You understand what it is to be accountable week in, week out, year in, year out. You know, I was talking to a really good friend of mine, Charlie Harrison, by the way, who's a hell of an amateur boxer. And we're talking, we talk about this a lot. The amateurs teaches you everything you need in boxing. It's about whether you're intelligent enough to understand that it's an evolution. Like, it shouldn't be a transformation. You should start off in the amateurs. And as you get more and more experienced... Your skills should be in demand by the pros. Now you're in a pro environment while being an amateur. And then you're like, well, Jesus, if I can do this, I can do four rounders and six rounders. But so mm -hmm. to your point on sort of evolution uh, rather than revolution, <laughs> uh, what 
is the right point to then leave the amateurs because for an Olympian it's or Olympic boxer it's quite easy because you have your cycles, uh, it's more easy. But let's say you are Charlie Harrison or you know, you're a guy that boxes at Petro Lodge, you know in the G B team, uh, you're a good amateur. How long do you need to be an amateur or when is the right point to leave that you don't overextend your amateur period where you're not learning, but you're actually right to turn to turn over to, to the pro ranks. Um, Adam Martin, if you're listening to this, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm going to pick Jermaine Brown as an example. Now, Jermaine's a friend. I love Jermaine. Jermaine's a class act. Uh, do I, would I rather Jermaine had stayed amateur for another year? Only another year? Probably. But I think the challenge he had was Fitzroy Lodge had pulled out of the ABA, so we had gone into the Alliance, which is going to do him no favours. And he was smart enough to see that. And so I think he went over and turned pro, probably a year before he would have wanted to. But Adam's done a manful job in bringing him along. right? So now I look at Jermaine, I think Jermaine is hardening up as a pro. And he's getting to that point now where like, him, him in the English title mix wouldn't surprise me. And a year from now, him in the British title mix wouldn't surprise me. But that's been a, a journey where he's had to learn a lot of things in the pro ranks that he'd rather have learnt in the amateurs. But he had the problem that there weren't enough bouts and all these sorts of things. And that's why people are turning pro earlier now. Because really, in the old days, like you could fight 25 times a season, right? So in three years, yeah. you could get to 60 or 70 bouts. That's enough experience to be turning over. Then the next question is, do people want to see you fight? That's evidenced by, can you sell tickets? That's evidenced by, are you respected by promoters to the point where they see you as a pet project? Yes or no? You know, never forget this. Even Anthony Joshua had to sell tickets. Everyone forgets that. People have to sell tickets because you have to demonstrate to the sport that there is a demand for you, that you're also willing to go out there and promote yourself and sell yourself because you become your own business once you turn pro. It's different to the amateurs. Amateurs... Everything's done for you. I'll get you a fight. I'll train you. I don't get paid for any of this. I will help you. I'll mentor you. I will guide you through everything in life. And then when you turn pro, that's all switched off. Now you have to become self-sufficient. You don't have that big network. Like The thing about the lodge is, if you're Charlie, and I can't wait for him to come back and start training again, but if you're Charlie Harrison, I picked Charlie because Charlie's one of these guys who's at close to 100 bouts as an amateur. That means he's experienced enough. Charlie comes in and there's a whole network around. If he needs something, we know someone in the club that can help him out, right? If he turns pro, he's got his coach and his manager. Maybe a couple of guys he trains with. The network shrinks immediately and people aren't prepared for these subtle adjustments. So you have to, you have to understand how the game works. So turning over isn't necessarily about whether you're the best boxer in the world in your weight class. It is about, can you demonstrate there's a demand to see you as a professional? Because once you can do that, you can dictate some of the terms. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's some of the thing that isn't overlooked, always often overlooked is the business side of whether it's worth somebody investing their time and money in you. But it's interesting you make that point about fighting 20 to 25 times a year and you often hear boxers talk about this and people in boxing that by the time people reach the pros 
they are mentally burned out because they have they've been training uh, since the age of ten. They've had a lot of bouts. They constantly making weight. Um, so that's why you might have so many loose cannons coming out because they've never lived a normal life. So, what's your view on whether the amateur system could do more to give people more more of a life outside of boxing that when they do turn pro, they aren't burnt out the same way as you know you have guys like Scott Fitzgerald or lots of other guys that clearly not being able to live life the first moment they get both money they just go off the rails so I don't think that's amateur boxing's problem and the reason I say that is you could get 10 guys come in like Scott Fitzgerald and they could box for 6 years as an amateur 9 of those guys will leave that gym being better people for it some guys won't that one won't but he will have such deep seated issues that all amateur boxing was able to do for him was act as a barrier between him and his destructive urges. So once that goes, and it goes back to what we talked about before, that support network in an amateur boxing context is important because it's not just the guys in your gym. It's the mates you have in other clubs because you either fought each other, your mates have fought each other. There's this wider network in the amateurs that can kind of keep you sane and also, it's, it's the fact that, that there are standards in amateur gyms where we can say, mate, we don't get paid for this. If we don't like you, and we don't like how you are in this gym, we don't like how you are around people, we will ask you to leave. You know, I remember, this is how far back it goes, I remember Dillian White coming to Fitzroy Lodge and Mick Carney just being like, nah, nah. I remember Olaf Falabi, who was Cruiserweight champion, I remember him coming to Fitzroy yeah. Lodge and Mick was like, Nah. So back in the day when I joined, it was hard to get into that gym because you had to be a good person as well as be someone that's capable of being taught. You didn't even have to be a good boxer. I'm terrible. Well, I'm not terrible now, but I was such a slow learner. But I had the mindset that said, I'm going to keep training my nuts off. I'm going to listen and I'm going to remain coachable. And I swear I've stuck around in that gym for 17 years now. And so people forget this. Well, it's interesting that point around uh, being a good person, but when is the right time for a boxing gym or boxing coach to give up on a fight, as in give up that they're not worth the effort? Because I think we've seen a lot of, you know, harrowing things, whether it's Billy Joe Saunders, Fitzgerald, and, you know, you can even think about Tank Davis and Bronin. The list goes on, right? But they clearly are people that are quite troubled outside of the ring but when is the right time as a coach to say enough is enough or kick a bite out of your gym and what's usually the process of that happening because that's something we never hear about because again another myth in boxing is coaches and fighters part but we don't hear about what's actually happened or either side of the story you'll always be given chances right now it's tricky I'm not going to name names, but I'll give you an example. It's hypothetical. You have a boxing gym, Riku, and a kid comes in and a kid's caught rifling through the pockets of other people's jackets or rifling through other people's bags, right? We can't keep the kid in the gym. As troubled as he is, we can't keep him in the gym because no one trusts him and no one respects him. And 
there's a real risk to his well-being that they may take it out on him in sparring, right? There's a real risk. Yeah. So what happens is actually amateur clubs are really good at self-policing because eventually if you're, if you're, if you're misbehaving or you're disrespectful, some, someone will discipline you in sparring and they'll just let you know, listen, we police this, right? And that's not to say it's a bullying culture. It's to say that you're in a very serious environment where we're teaching you how to hurt people, but we're also teaching you how not to get hurt. But what underpins all of that is we need certain values to be bought into. We need you to embrace certain values. And they are, you've got to respect the club. And you've got to respect the idea that you're not bigger than the club, you're not bigger than the sport. You, you have to understand that the coaches are there to help you. And therefore, you have to be coachable. You have to be receptive. You also have to be a good citizen because what you do outside the ring impacts what you do in the ring. And these are all things that people will watch for. And when, when it becomes clear that you refuse to abide by those things, then it's time for you to leave. And I think it's easier to do at a club like Fitzroy Lodge because that draws people in. Repton draws people in. West Ham draws people in. You want to go up north. Uh, Bermontoft draws people in. Steel City Boxing draws people in. Rotunda will draw people in. Collyhurst and Moston will draw people in. All these gyms will draw people in. So they don't have that problem. Where these guys tend to flourish is in clubs that just want that one talented kid to win the ABAs to make their club legitimate. Then, you know, like if you look at when Billy Joe was at, I think he was at Hodston, if I'm correct. Yeah. They would have probably tolerated that at Hodston because they're like, this guy could go on and win an Olympic medal. So we're going to tolerate this. Is it the right thing to do? individually yes but for the good of the sport probably not scott fitzgerald was at larches and savick you know you got a guy there who went on to win a commonwealth games gold so now they're like look we've had a commonwealth gold winner scott fitzgerald are they bothered about what he does as a pro maybe but it's kind of up to him now so they'll yeah. be enabled and tolerated at the smaller clubs because they need them more you know look Mick Carney threw David Hay out of Fitzroy Lodge because David refused to toe the line. So David had to finish his amateur career representing Broad Street, although he never actually, I don't think he even trained at Broad Street ever. But, you know, he needed a club and he needed the name. So it's, there's ways of policing yeah. things. And I think when you're in a boxing gym, you tend to see that there's a respect for the envi environment that you're in. What happens outside of that is a lot harder to control and police because there are so many influences that you cannot factor in. Well, why do you think all the points you make are quite valid and as boxing fans, you know, the age-old mantra, boxing saves lives. Uh, but why do you think boxing has struggled to attract young people? Is it because of the misbehavings of top-level boxers? Is it because of the brutality of the sport? Is boxing just very bad at PRing itself? What is it that detracts people from sending their kids to a boxing gym, particularly those that aren't from working-class backgrounds? Boxing gyms are full. Most boxing gyms are full. The problem's not that boxing gyms aren't full. The problem is the price point's so low that it's probably not profitable to run an amateur gym. That's what makes it hard. So on a, on a typical training night in Fitzroy Lodge, we're full. Like, if you've ever seen the videos, you'll know, we're full. Repton, full. The issue, actually, is if you look longer term, 
the areas are becoming gentrified. So if you look at where Fitzroy lodges, we're right by Lambeth and Vauxhall. So in those days, there were a lot of pretty serious kids that lived in and around the estates there, and they'd just come to the lodge. It was a natural catchment area. But those places are now million pound flats. It's getting more and more expensive. So these guys are being rehoused further and further out. So that's one challenge. And I don't think we're alone in that. Repton will have the same problem. West Ham will have the same problem. Earlsfield will have the same problem. So the catchment area now grows wider. So that's the first issue. So now the kids that are growing up near Fitzroy Lodge are from families that probably play rugby, cricket and hockey. Boxing's not on their radar. So that makes it tricky. The third bit is, it's not easy getting into a ring and getting hit in the face. So it's a rare character that can come in and do that and do it on a sustained basis. So already you've limited your potential market. So I think there are, so those are the key factors that when you bring them all together, will explain why boxing is going through a bumpy time at the moment. I, I would almost argue I'd love to have it in schools. I think having boxing in schools would normalize it and you'd actually realize, and I, I say this to parents a lot, if something were to happen to my kid, I'd rather it was at a boxing show than a rugby match. Because at a boxing show, I have all the paramedic support I need. I've got a defibrillator if needed. Excuse me. Uh, ventilators are there. Everything is there that you can, you can treat someone at ringside. You get injured at rugby, the ambulance might take half an hour. So where would you rather be? My friend, rest in peace, Jason Lehman, my friend had a heart attack on a rugby pitch, 5th of January 2013. And Jason died. Ambulance took too long to get there. No matter how much CPR you can do, there wasn't a defibrillator. Had Jason collapsed at a boxing match, they might have saved him. That's the difference. So people don't have that sense of perspective on how safe boxing is, but I'd sooner have something happen to my kid at a boxing show than a rugby match. And do you think the CTE stuff, so the brain traumas from boxing and sort of any contact sports these days, more or less, uh, do you think that had a long-term impact on the viability of the sport at schools and at a younger level, or will they have to change perhaps the safety measures in place for amateurs. So I'll give you an example, just so everyone listening has a context around this. I don't believe anyone should be sparring more than six rounds a week in the amateurs. Like, if you're sparring more than six rounds a week, then they're probably pretty soggy rounds, right? Because if I, if I, say, to, if I say to Mo, if I say to Matty, if I say to Farwes, listen, this week you got six rounds. They're not fucking around in those rounds. They're going in, they're getting their work done, and they're getting out. When I see people sparring 10, 15 rounds a week, that's when I worry about CTE. Six rounds, I think you can recover from that. Because Would he dissect them into two, three-round segments or one six-round segment? Depends on what you want to do, to be honest with you. like They, they all serve different purposes. So if, if I make you do six in a row, that's just a lung burner. Right. And and I and I do that accepting the last two rounds are just more about heart. By then the power's all taken out of you, so that's all good. You know, there's no harm that's gonna to come to you at that point. That's just, you know, mental conditioning. If I give you blocks of two, then we're just going, you know what I mean, we're going for, for speed and work rate. So you can manage those loads accordingly. But 
Now let's break down these six rounds. Uh, maybe you get hit in six rounds. Maybe you get hit clean 30 times. The rest of the time, scuffing blows. But even then, I don't think you're going to get hit more than 70 times in six rounds. I just don't, right? A lot of those will be body shots as well, which you're better able to absorb. You know, that's not to say that those minor traumas don't have an effect. But now we're looking at pretty low numbers. Now take a typical rugby drill session, a typical tackle session. Every kid will tackle about 30 times in one training session. You play in a game, you might do 15 tackles. You know, that's a head hitting a leg. You might get hit in a ruck another 20 times. You're taking more trauma in a game of rugby than you are boxing. It's just the reality of it. So boxing is the one that I'm least worried about. And I think if you look at the numbers of people who do have CTE-related issues, American football has a massive problem. Rugby has a growing problem. You know, Ice hockey? Yeah. Big problems. Yes, and I think they're finding it now, even in some of the winter sports. So I don't know if it's the luge or the skeleton bob, but that impact, your head being hit at those G-forces, is causing CTE as well. So do we ban that? Don't know. So we have to have a sense of perspective on the numbers. I just think in an amateur gym, I don't know anyone that really sustained any sort of CTE type injuries because we're just saying, look, every week you're going to do six rounds. Six rounds, that's all. And even if you fight, like you're doing three threes. And normally you're matched to your rough level of ability. So you can hit him as often as he can hit you. You can evade him as often as he can evade you. So it's less of a worry. I think the pro side is because if you look at how pros train, for every round they fight, they're probably sparring 10. Is that necessary? Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with it. You know, why was Carl Frampton doing 220 rounds in a camp? I don't know. But did that have an effect on his career? Did it shorten his career? It looks like it did. So who's managing yeah. those loads? Do you see what I mean? So it's about how you manage the load. Are you intelligent in how you manage your fighter's load? If you're not, you're going to empty that tank like Mike Tyson did. And that's why Mike Tyson was only effective in the 80s. And he was slightly above average in the 90s. Well, do you think, back to my earlier points about boxing evolving, do you think boxing coaches have been around a long time? Often the perception is they don't really want to take on board new information. Do you think that's sort of the evolution of the coaches will help change the safety of boxing? So new coaches with new ideas, more reliant maybe on scientific evidence around CT and other stuff will be able to prolong the careers of their fighters by actually managing loads better and understanding what impact it has on people's bodies. Uh, to an extent. So there are some guys who who have to overtrain. Now pick someone like John Pilata. You can't really tell John to, to wind down in a fight week. It messes with his head if he doesn't feel the burn. And I understand that. That's just how his brain relates to, to the upcoming fight. He needs, to feel, he needs to feel that burn in the week leading up to the fight. And so you manage around that. You know? So then in that case, you're trying to manage downtime. Okay. You need him to take a couple yeah. of weeks off after a fight. He needs to go back and you know, be around people, laugh, joke, reconnect with, with the world. But then there are other guys who are more receptive to resting in the week before a fight. And so they manage their loads differently. So there's a physical component, which is 
how do we get you through in the most efficient way to your peak performance? And then there's the bit that says, how do we manage the externalities around that? So some people for a 12-round fight will spar 120 rounds. Some people will spar 60 rounds. And so you say, why is there such a difference? It's the psychology of it. When do you feel comfortable? So, look, I imagine James Tony would spar 40 rounds and still feel comfortable doing a 12-round fight. You know, Calzaghe as well. I mean, because of his hands, he couldn't spar that much later on in his career. But how much did he spar before? We don't know. But yeah. what, what we know with Calzaghe is he seemed to have a really good decision-making capability as a fighter. And you can only get that from sparring. Now, you're not learning that in a textbook. So he's clearly sparred a lot earlier in his career, so he doesn't have to spar that much later in his career. That's smart. And that's probably the reason why, if you take all the, the drug issues aside, Joe Calzaghe's in reasonably good shape. Maybe it's the reason why Carl Froch is still in reasonably good shape. So it swings and roundabouts. It's literally... Have you got a progressive coach who understands that there are some things that are bad for you? Because in the old days, boxers didn't really spar that much because they fought more often. So if you're fighting six times in a year, you're kind of never out of camp. So you don't have to do the heavy sparring loads because you kind of, you manage the, the peaks and the troughs a lot better. So you're, you're, pretty much close to fight weight you're pretty much close to fight sharpness most of your year and then you know the one thing you could add from a progressive perspective in terms of modern boxing is how would you manage that rest period that's probably it diet yeah bit of strength and conditioning maybe but I talk to the up-and-coming coaches now and I look at them and I go I like where they're headed so this is where you shine light on guys like Donald Smith I um, want to shine a light on Sean Earls as well. I like Sean's ideas. I like how he thinks about the game. And, you know, obviously my guys, Big Linton, Simon Rose, I love how progressive they are about the sport. And even Mark Rygate, who likes to portray himself as a dinosaur. But I've known Mark for 17 <laughs> years now. And I see Mark just bringing these little little clever things that Mark picks up from everyone else. Mark, 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 Mark's intelligence is he's always had people around him that he'll just pick ideas from. He doesn't steal them. Because he'll, he'll shine some light on you. He'll give you credit. But Mark will start using some of the stuff you bring in. And so he's been able to evolve because he's still got the old school mindset. But he's got some progressive ideas within him as well. So all these guys I see, you know, Damien Charlemagne, shouts out to him wherever he is now. All these young coaches that you, that you surround yourself with. Uh, Josh Burnham as well. Let me not forget him. There's probably more of Miss Tony Pill I like as well. And look, if I've missed out your name, sorry, because I'm literally just doing this live. So whatever's on top of my head. All these guys have really progressive ideas. And I think the only difference between these guys and Ben Davison is they haven't got that case study yet. You give them their case study and then you're like, oh, OK, these guys are up there, too. But no, there are a lot of progressive minds coming through the game. So that's definitely a positive. So if we think about training a fighter from scratch, so let's use. Logan, Paul, and KSI as examples. So where do you begin training someone like that? They have a fight day, uh, they haven't boxed before, or they've done the, you know, let's talk about the amateur boxing thing they did. So what do you do in a three, four-month period to start training them for a fight? I know it's like, it's different to the white qualified way training groups. You get a kid that needs to fight in four months 
and you dedicate your time to just training them, it's not group training. So what do you do for something? What do you do for someone like that? Footwork, jab, backhand. That's all I'm giving them. Uh, I don't think they could I don't think they could effectively execute much more than that. And I think the bulk of it would just be working on the foot movement, making sure that look, if you've only got three or four months, your defenses are going to be amazing. So let me just make sure you're not there to be hit. Oh, that's objective one. Objective one, I'm taking you from zero. I don't want you getting hit. So we're going to work on that, right? When I see you show competence at not getting hit, now we're going to talk about how you can hit. Because remember, as human beings, we're instinctively wired to be able to attack. If you watch most fights in nature, you don't see lions trying to counter punch, do you? Lions rarely, it's, it's you go at each other. And whoever's bigger and stronger, or even lucky in some cases, wins. You're not seeing lions slipping, rolling, doing shoulder rolls, none of that, right? Because that's not what we're wired to do. So in terms of going forward and attacking, most people can do that. And you see that in white collar shows where they just run into each other and then they forget that they can go backwards. So I'm teaching you to go backwards. I'm teaching you to go to the side. Once you've got that, now I want you to use your eyes. Okay, you've stepped to the right. What can you see? Okay, now I can put a jab in there. I can put a right hand in there. That's all we're taking into that first fight. That is all. Yeah? Keep your hands up. Catch the punches on your forearms. We ain't going to teach you anything complicated. No rolling. No, 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 no. That's enough for you. Because if you master that package of things, you'll get through your first few fights. Then we can start to layer things on over time. I'm not trying to impress you with how many mad drills I can do. I'm trying to get you over the finish line for that first fight then we'll deal with what comes next after that. And that's how you should build. So, looking at KSR and Logan Paul, where do you think they rank in natural talent for boxing? So, if you took an amateur footballer or a guy off the street, or even some of the small hall boxers, and you started them at the point of Logan Paul and KSI, how talented are they as fighters? Natural instinct. It's not really about that. It's what can you absorb? So, do I think you could put KSI in an area-level title fight? No. He, the first time he got hit in those tens properly, he'd fall over. So, now let's go back. Do I think he could fight the worst journeyman I could think of? No. Could he roll down into the amateurs and be competitive? Not really. Could he be a jobbing amateur who has a few fights, wins a few, loses a few? Yeah. Probably, but you don't need much ability to do that. You just need to be consistent and you'll get there eventually. So talent-wise, not necessarily. At the, at the pro level, it's more about what you can take. There are a few more elements well, around that, but essentially it is how much can you take. That will determine how far you go. Well, if you think about it this way, if you gave a guy like... Uh, me or, you know, an amateur football or something like that, if you gave them the same training and attention you gave KSI and Logan Paul over the period of the amateur fight and then the zone fight, how good do you think they are? So do you think they actually, given the attention and talent they have, they perform well, or do you think they actually, natural talent, they quite shocking boxers? Do you remember there was a thing called bum fights where you got homeless people to fight each other? Yeah. And those fights looked quite competitive, right? Yes. But if you sneezed, you could probably drop both of those guys. And that's what you saw with KSI Logan Paul. You just saw two 
really bad boxers fighting each other, which made it look better than maybe it would have been had we had a proper benchmark. So what did they fight at like heavyweight or cruiserweight? I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember either. Let's just assume they fought somewhere between the two. If I put one of those guys in with Eric Moconzo, do I think it lasts more than two rounds? No. If I put one of those two in with Isaac Chamberlain, does it last a round? Absolutely not. So that should let you know the standard that they're at. Yeah, agreed. Okay, I've got a few questions, a uh, few more questions. I'm going to go into the stuff that I guess people are quite interested in. Why do you think Eddie Hearn is doing such a bad job? I'm not going to give my own opinion on this uh, because I broadly agree with a lot of things you say. But why do you think essentially he's doing a bad job for his fighters and British boxing in general? This is tricky. So I think we need to delineate here. Hearn's been good for British boxing. And here's why. Fighters, he, he made it cool to pay fighters on time and to pay fighters what they agreed. Right? Is he the biggest payer? Yeah. No. But he pays. And so now, who would have thought we'd be talking about paying fighters on time is not the cool thing to do. But fair play to him for doing that. I also like the fact that he will talk up all of his fighters. Right? No matter how bad we think they are, he'll talk up all of his fighters. You never see, he doesn't go missing. He's there, right? At all, of, all those press conferences, he's there. Unless he's got a clash, he's there. Hearn does a lot of good things, and I like this about him above all else. He seems to fly pretty straight. Now, what do I mean by that? There are people who have bounties out there. If you can find incriminating dirt on Eddie Hearn, people will pay you for it. And I know this has been going for at least four years and no one's found anything. That tells you he flies pretty straight. So fair play to him because he's either really good at killing stories or he flies pretty straight. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say Eddie Hearn flies pretty straight. The issue with Hearn is twofold for me. One, he doesn't seem to manage careers very well. And we'll come on to that in a second. And second, but is that the manager's job? We'll come back to that one. The second one is he has no respect for anyone else in the sport. So anyone is a convenient casualty as long as he gets to put out his narrative. And so that creates these externalities that he's now dealing with, where you create enemies and people just don't want to deal with you. So now you're harming fighters' careers. So if we just circle back to harming people's careers, Hearn doesn't seem to have champions that can hold belts for five, six, seven fights. Like Frank does. Frank does. And we, we criticize the, the fighters Frank Warren puts in front of his champions. Fine. But they get that longevity at the top where you get used to being the main event guy. You get used to being the main, the, the A side. And that's what boxers need. They need that consistency. Hearn struggles to do that. Why is that? He doesn't have those relationships where he can make the right fights happen, number one. Number two, the matchmaking at Matchroom, pardon the pun there, hasn't been where it needs to be. And as a result, fighters aren't being built properly. I'm trying to think of a fighter they've built properly. Okoli is probably the best example where they've matched Okoli to the level of his ability. And so Lawrence has gone further than any of the other 2016 class. I worry about Joshua Boatsy now because... I don't think he's been in a testing fight. And I don't want to hear people say, 
They're not testy only because he's got rid of people so quickly. That's not true. There are fighters that he could have now. And I think he'd beat guys at 175 who have names. I think he'd be competitive with guys like Sullivan Barrera. You got to make these fights. So it's almost like we talk about Hearn paying people on time, but it's like he doesn't want to invest in those types of opportunities for his guys. Now, I'll come back to your question and go, is that a manager's problem? And it depends on how you read it, right? Because if Hearn owns the platform, he dictates those terms within very tight tram lines. So he might give you three opponents and all three might be unsuitable. And then you might suggest one and Hearn's like, I'm not putting my money down for that opponent. So that's the only way you get on the platform, right? You got to play by his rules to get on that platform. And that's the problem with signing promotional agreements because it's not a question of, you know, ideally what you'd have, like if you wanted a fair market system, no boxers would be affiliated to a promoter. And then Hearn would say, Boxer X, I've got to fight for you against Boxer Y. Here's how much it will make for you. And then maybe another promoter says, no, I've got to fight for you against this other guy and I'll pay you more money. And then all of a sudden you start to work that way. That's really how you'd want boxing to work, but it doesn't work that way. And so we end up in a position where Hearn rarely gives the fans what they want. You know? And if you're a Hearn fighter, you're looking at him going, why are you losing purse bids? You know, Why? And then when people do want to go to purse bids, you overpay. Uh, I think the Joshua Povetkin one was a prime example. When the Russians said, listen, we're going to, we're going to let this go to purse bids because this is how much we think it's worth. And then Eddie had to come back to the table and go, uh, if this went to purse bids, it would reveal how much Joshua's really worth. And then that would harm the Fury negotiations down the line and the Wilder negotiations down the line. But all of this stuff he does, and it pisses me off, but he does it for the betterment of the Matchroom Empire. And here's one of the things I guess I get to make this clear. Hearn has a job to do in the boxing ecosystem. I have a job to do in the boxing ecosystem. Coogan has a job to do in the boxing ecosystem. Porky has a job to do in the boxing ecosystem. Adam Smith has a job. Frank Warren has a job to do in this boxing ecosystem. We all exist in this ecosystem, right? And we have our defined roles now. So I can't be mad at Hearn as, as a man for being Eddie Hearn. He's got his empire to look after. I have mine to look after. Coogan has his to look after. Frank has his to look after. Riku has his to look after. And so we all play this merry little game. We all kind of, you know, play around with each other. But ultimately it's for the betterment of the sport because you need that diversity of characters and positioning because it keeps us all on our toes that's how i look at it so yeah hearn pisses me off and there's a lot of stuff he does that i don't like disrespecting shelly finkel didn't like it um constantly briefing against wilder didn't like it constantly briefing against fury didn't agree with it because those all took money off the table because it turned fans off fury and it turned fans off wilder when as a promoter you should be building Wilder up as this monster. So when your guy Joshua fights him, that's a big deal. Right now, it's not because they always try and say, Wilder's got no fans, no one knows who he is. Why am I going to pay for that on pay-per-view? And then you know, this is the annoying thing. You know, if Joshua's trying to fight Wilder, Hearn will be telling you Wilder's a killer, he's a monster. He's been in exciting fights. He's earned a lot of money. He'll just go back on his word. That's what I don't like. And that's my frustration with boxing media. No one ever pulls him up on that and says, 
You were slagging this guy off last year. Now you're praising him. Can you see why people would think you're a bit of a snake? We don't, but these things are never addressed, so they build up. And that's why you see guys like Porky Russ get frustrated. Because he just says, where's the accountability for the damage you do by being flippant with the words? And I know that was a very lengthy answer to the question, but I think that probably captures a lot of what I think in terms of Eddie Hearn. Yeah, I think I think those are all very valid points. Uh, and I guess the follow-up question to that is, is the Heyman model then better where you just, or not better, but how do you then see that model where you work within your own stable of fighters, they fight each other, you aren't in the public eye talking about what's happening in negotiations, you aren't coming up interest because it's all an in-house UFC type model. So what's your view on then? that model as a counter model. So it ticks a number of boxes for me. It creates the notion of a franchise, right? And I think boxing's always been weak because it doesn't have a franchise. The Premier League is a franchise. The NBA is a franchise. The NFL is a franchise. As a sponsor, I can engage directly with the franchise. And by doing that, it can impose obligations on people within that franchise. So for example... Barclays sponsoring the Premier League. I don't know if they still do. But I can interview a fighter. My, my logos are behind him. I can engage with that franchise. I don't have to say to the player, can I put my logo behind you? So commercially, easier to deal with. So I understand why he did that with the PBC. The challenge was he couldn't gain control of the belts. That's what you needed. So at welterweight... I think when Floyd was kind of affiliated to the Al Heyman machine, it was easier because you had the, the greatest of his generation, the greatest of all time, however you want to call him. You had him there, which validated any of the fights. But now we've got Terence Crawford, who's with Bob Arum. So we can't say that Al Heyman stable has the best 147 guy. There's question marks. He has the, the deepest talent pool and he makes them fight each other. And as fans, we've loved that. So I think... Heyman's shown what you really need to do is just give people competitive fights. That's how you justify paying people so much money. And I don't think Eddie's there yet because we should have had Chris Congo versus Josh Kelly. Do you see what I mean? We should have had Fowler versus Cheeseman already. But he, he tries to drag these things out and it disrespects the fans. It says to the fans, you're not worthy of having this fight until I tell you you are. Whereas Al, Al's like, oh, you want Danny versus Keith? All right, we'll do that. You want Sean versus Danny? Fine, we'll do that. You want Sean versus Errol? We'll do that. But would you say then that boxers are overpaid because economically the PBC has more or less been a disaster? So the money they initially got uh, from the hedge funds that was spent didn't grow their revenues or didn't grow interest in the franchise. And now they've got Fox and Showtime money and again you're stuck in the same place where you might put these fights on but actually people aren't engaged in PBC as a brand what they're engaged in is the fights but you know the pay-per-view numbers tell you the story that they haven't been able to garner the same interest even by creating these competitive matchups as the UFC perhaps because your point of having Crawford outside the tent makes it more difficult but would you say economically that model in boxing just doesn't work uh, the PBC model 
not necessarily. So the difference with the UFC is the UFC are pretty good at building narratives. So we know where and controlling wages. Yeah, so we know where it's all headed, right? That's why they're able to sell for four billion. We 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 know we're going to get these fights at some point, and so we take comfort in that. It's hard to duck people in the UFC. I think Al's done that pretty well in that if you're two PBC guys, it's going to be hard for you to duck each other. Pacquiao fought Broner. Look at all the fights that have happened on PBC. Start to break them down. Then compare what you get on Bob Arum's platform. Now compare what you get on Eddie Hearn's platform. Now compare what you get on De La Hoya's platform. Al's light years ahead in terms of what he's delivering for the fans. Now, if you're saying to me that other people are making more money and getting more viewership delivering boxing content, I'm like, I find that hard to believe. I think Al does the best numbers in boxing. I just think boxing's a sport that only the fighters take the money with them. Like Boxing was lucrative when Mayweather was there. But when Mayweather, when Mayweather left, he took that money with him. If you don't believe me, just know that he could come back this year and he'd still make a lot of money and then leave again and no one else makes money. It's the same with Joshua. If Joshua retired now, he takes that money with him. If Fury retires now, he takes that money with him. It doesn't stay in the franchise. And this is where boxing struggles. Because it means you can't build year on year, right? So if we say that Mayweather took boxing to a 9 out of 10 in terms of how lucrative it was, when he left, it went down to a 3. So now someone's got to build it from a 3 back to a 9 or a 10 again. And then when they leave, it will come down to a 3. Whereas the Premier League, Premier League, if, if the Premier League's 7 out of 10 when Ronaldo's in there, when he leaves, it's still 7 out of 10. And then maybe when Man City start doing their thing, it goes up to eight. And then they go down, it still stays at eight. It rarely goes backwards. Whereas boxing just goes, vroom, snakes and ladders. So if I was putting my CFO head on here, I would say the problem is that boxers are overpaid effectively. I mean, I guess it, yeah, they rest their life in the ring. And, you know, I, I wouldn't advocate that boxers deserve less money than they should, but... Looking at it from an economical point of view, you are constantly overpaying because there's so much inflation with the person. If you look at the Mayweather, you know, Mayweather making the money he made, that the interest hasn't caught up with actually what fighters are earning. Okay, so just to touch on one thing there. We know when people say boxers are risking their lives, but we need to just shut the fuck up with that. Like, like me jumping in the ring with Joshua is risking my life. Like, me having been boxing for 30 or 40 fights against another guy, that's not really risking my life. I'd expect to be reasonably competent at that. And if not, sack your matchmaker. So this notion that they're risking their lives, come on, man. Like, there are other professions that have a higher mortality rate. Like, you know, being one of those minesweepers, whatever they call them, you know, the bomb disposal experts. That's risking yeah. your life. Like, jumping into a ring to do a sport you've been training for for a decade, nah, I'm not sold on that. But back to the, the whole CFO thing, I don't think Mayweather was overpaid, right? Like the economics of Mayweather's pay were justified in the, in the pay-per-view numbers. Mayweather was paid based on what he generated. No one generated... Yeah, but if, you think about, but if you think about maybe Fury Wilder for this fight or you think about some of the Walterway fights that PBC have put on or lots of these other fights, 
But they all look like they broke and even, right? So Fury Wilder, they said the break-even figure was something like 900,000. The numbers that it did are somewhere close to that. So that wasn't a disaster. The welterweights, PBC weren't paying insane numbers to those welterweights. So I imagine they've made their money back. The, the, the noise I'm hearing from the PBC is this Fox model is far more viable economically than what they were doing before because they've had to be realistic in what they're paying. So their message is, we're going to pay you, but if you want to earn the money you were earning before, you're going to have to fight more because that's what the fans are demanding. And it's whoever responds to that first. That, that sentence is very important. And this is important to any boxers that listen to this. You do not determine how many times you fight a year. The fans will. Because if you fight twice a year, you're not getting those purses anymore. If I want to see yeah. you fight four times a year, that's the only way you're going to make the money you expect. I think boxers need to start being realistic. And You know when you hear, if the money is right, we'll make the fights happen. That's what kills the sport. Like, what do you mean, if the money's right? Like, you don't determine that. You just say, listen, I'll fight this guy. It'll be on pay-per-view. Yeah, we'll take the upside on that. Fighters should do that. I know there are boxers like Chisora who do that. The contract just says, okay, I get a purse of X, which is enough to cover my, my costs, so to speak, and then I eat off that pay-per-view upside. And I think that's, let's do that in boxing because that will let people know pretty quick who really generates money. I guess that's the, more of the UFC model where the salaries are more or less fixed and then you get the pay-per-view upside if you're the main event. Um, well, if you think about your earlier comments about good matchmaking and you know competitive fights garnering interest, why has the World Boxing Super Series then been such a, I'd say, financial disaster? Do you want to know the truth? Yeah. Boxing fans don't want to pay for shit. That's all there is to it. Boxing fans do not want to pay for anything. That's all there is to it. Like, how many boxing fans buy merchandise? Not many. How many boxing fans will engage with the sponsors of their favorite boxer? Not many. Boxing fans don't want to do shit, but they want the, the world-class fights. I can't, I can't name, as a collective, a lazier, more toxic, less engaged group of people than boxing fans. Like, I wouldn't get involved in that sport because Jesus is blood out of a stone. Take the Premier League. If I'm an Arsenal fan, like, I can say, no, I have Arsenal shirts. I have Arsenal socks. I have Arsenal shorts. I have Arsenal jackets here. Jesus, I've got AC Milan shirts. I've got Ajax shirts. I've got Borussia Dortmund shirts. Because I'm a football fan. Excuse me. And football means a lot to me. Do I have Daryl Williams' t-shirt? Yeah. Do I have Boxer's t-shirts? Craig Richards still owes me three, but it's all right. <laughs> I, I put money in. I buy tickets when I don't have to. Because I understand that's how the sport works. I remember once I'd gone to see Daryl Williams' box. And I went to York Hall instead of the Camden Centre, being an idiot. And so it turned out it was a wrestling event, which took me half an hour to figure out. But what surprised <laughs> me was they had the merch tables in York Hall, right? And they were flipping up these T-shirts, 20 quid a pop, and these 
Kids are buying the t-shirts. Parents are buying the t-shirts. The fans are wearing the t-shirts. And so I'm talking to the merch people. I'm like, how many of these do you reckon you're going to sell here? About 50 or 60. 20 quid a pop. That's a grand. Maybe they cost a tenner to make. That's 500 quid prof off the top. Where's that in boxing? Why aren't boxing fans doing that? You're up there just posting fucking videos and, oh, look at how knowledgeable I am because I can go on YouTube and get a clip and share it. I don't spend a penny on the sport, though. I don't care about the amateurs. I don't care about the grassroots. I just want to be here talking shit on Twitter about boxing. Boxing fans are an absolute fucking disgrace. That's why these guys are destitute. That's why these guys are all struggling now because you don't buy no t-shirts. You don't buy hats. You don't engage with these guys apart from to take the piss out of them. You're not helping anyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the point? Like, I, I do. I, I look at the boxing market and I'm like, what are you doing? What is it you're doing for the sport? Just tweeting about it. Sharing videos that boxers don't even eat off. What are you doing? And everyone has to have a hard look at themselves. How much are you contributing to the sport that you have in your fucking Twitter bio? I'm a huge boxing fan. I follow everything in boxing. And you don't spend a penny. You're there streaming shit. I stream some things. I buy some things, right? I make that decision as a, as a consumer. But the stuff I talk about, I pay for. Go back to that time when I berated Goodwin's show. I paid for the tickets. I've never, I've never walked into a show for free. Well, you paid for mine and Winnie's tickets as well, so cheers for that. Yeah. Because I'm like, listen, if I'm going to be here talking about the sport, let me put money in. Where you got all these bloodsuckers, let me in for free. Oh, if you're going to let me in for free, then I ain't coming. Fuck out of here, man. Boxing fans, up your game or get the fuck out of the sport. Like, we didn't need you before Frotch Groves. You weren't even there, some of you, you bottom feeders, just sucking on the dick of this thing. It angers me because I'm getting the messages now where boxers are like, shit, how am I going to make money now? And the fans are going, well, I don't care. You're not fighting, so why do I care? Then I'm like, so as a boxing fan, what are you invested in? Are you invested in a fighter trying to better himself? Or are you just invested in the opportunity to gain attention for yourself by being disrespectful about the sport and those that participate in it? What, are, what, what is your role in the sport? Are you lifting the sport or dragging it down? There are only two options. And a lot of people, it's disgraceful. A lot of people are just sucking on the dick of it and then choosing not to swallow. Fine. But just get the fuck out of the sport. Let the sport crash and burn without you fuckers out here just, just talking. Not putting no money down, nothing. I know people are going to say, well, I was a Joshua this, I was a Joshua that. Okay, fine. What else did you do? Who else did you help? I'm going to yeah, just leave it there. This, yeah, I think this, I mean, a big shout out to guys like the Mayo Brixton that support his own fighters, buys tickets for every Brixton fighter, goes to the gyms, you know, engages with these boxers. I think the level of respect and support they have for him because he's supported them, that's authentic fanship and that's something you can't really buy. Rob Martin's the benchmark for me. Like, if you can't do what Rob Martin does or get approximately there, you're not serious as a fan. I don't respect your opinion. I don't respect 
anything you say about the sport, if you can't get to Rob's level of engagement in the sport, do not speak to me because I don't respect you. And I don't even think, and uh, sorry, Rob, if I say this, I don't think Rob's killing himself to do that. I think Rob's just following his passion. That's boxing. That's what we need in the same way that football has that. Why boxing fans think they're too good? And to be honest, it all starts with the boxers because the boxers think they're too good to engage with the fans. It's this weird war where it's like, we don't like each other, but we kind of need each other and we need to break that. You know, you got people like Sonny Edwards disrespecting people on Twitter and so forth. I don't agree with it. I understand sometimes he gets provoked and needled, but you're not helping yourself. You're not helping the fans. You know what? You're not, it's not that cohesion. And it's on both sides to start being a bit nicer, kinder to each other. But boxers have their job to do as well. Stop being lazy with how you engage with fans. I'm going to start calling people out on this because I'm tired of seeing the running, like the running footage. I'm tired of seeing the press-ups. I'm tired of seeing you hit the bag. Because if that's all you do in your life, you're just telling me you're doing your job. And if, if that's all you can do in a 24-hour period, then maybe that job is somewhat beyond you because you should be able to do something else. It's seemingly everyone else is able to do that within their own sports. You know, Even the netballers, man. Everyone's been more interesting in this lockdown than boxers, and it's disgraceful. So if you don't up your game... Maybe the fans weren't up theirs. But right now, like this shit's just super toxic and I can't be around it. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's uh, end of my final question, which maybe we just take it from your previous point. So what do you think are the two things that boxers can do and what are the two things that fans can do to make the boxing community, I guess, healthier, you know, more nicer to each other, and also elevate the sports ultimately, because we all love this sport. If you're listening to this podcast, you're a boxing fan, and you want to see the sport thrive, and you want to see the sport succeed, and fight to succeed, and gain paid. So what are the things that the boxing establishment, which is the fighters and the promoters, the two things they can do uh, in the next 12 months to elevate the sport, and what are the two things fans can do aside from just spending a lot of money. Okay, so let me just sort of pick them in order. Frank and Eddie, let go of the reins, right? Appoint heads of creative. Just do that, right? Matchroom's head of creative, Queensbury's head of creative. Find people that aren't necessarily die-hard boxing hardcore people and go, look, you're here to create Queensbury content, right? Same with Matchroom. Like, I'm, I'm not picking one side over the other. I think they can both do this. And it's the job of these guys to come up with content ideas, right? And then every one of those boxes signed to these promoters has to make themselves available for a day. Like, it has to be like a, like a serious day where you can capture all of that content, get your interviews done, film the sparring. Yes, film the sparring. Have the conversation. If, if it turns out that, yeah, you know, I'm, me and my mates are off to play football tonight, film that too. Let's see you interact with your mates. If you go down for a Sunday road, let's see you interact with these people. Let's just see something a bit wider. So I think at the top level, get heads of creative in there. Give them carte blanche to create this content. Because as this downtime has shown, there's times when you really need that. And I think that's content that's not necessarily time-bound. 
which is a problem with a lot of, like if you look at the interviews we get from the boxing channels, they're all time bound because they're all linked to specific events. So I don't really need to go back and watch the videos from Joshua Ruiz in terms of interviews because I've seen them. And once I see him once, I'm done. But would I want to see someone show me their life? I'm not going to get bored of that. And I can always revisit that. And not only that, but when fights come up, you've got content you can just tap into. You don't have to create it from scratch. So heads of creative at Matchroom and Queensbury, I think would be good. Better matchmaking. So I think, shouts out to Jay McClory. He, he seems to be on the money right now. We'll see what Matchroom do now that Paul Reddy's gone. But I just want better matchmaking. I want fights I'm going to get excited about. And if I'm not going to get that fight today, tell me when I am going to get it and be absolutely clear about that. I think we need that. What do boxers need to do? They need to be more interesting, number one. Number two, they need to understand that you're not going to get better by training eight hours a day for six days a week. You're just not going to get better. 60% of that effort's wasted. Start growing up and realizing there's a reason why elite level athletes train for about an hour, twice a day, and then the rest of the time they go off and be human beings. And if you're not willing to share that with your fans as a boxer, you don't deserve their money. So the challenge is on boxers now to be more interesting. If you don't know how to be more interesting, find someone that's got the answer. Stop being lazy. Stop being thick. Another thing, stop shooting yourselves in the foot. You know, Scott Fitzgerald and so forth. Just stop doing dumb shit when you're a public figure. And the final thing, stop coming to fans only when you need something. Yeah? Give them shit for free. And then when you need them, they'll come, they'll come for you. Fans, listen, it's not just about buying the tickets. Because boxers don't even see that much of the ticket revenue. It is. It's the t-shirts. It's the banging the drum for the guy. Let the guy get the profile. Follow. Like, there's, there's so many things that are free. Retweets are free. Likes are free. Follows are free. Right? That doesn't cost you anything. If you buy a t-shirt, I get it, right? Maybe that's a tenner you can't afford. I'm with you. Tickets, sometimes you're too far from the venue. I get it. That's fine. But there are things you can do for free. Yeah. You can just engage like that. Don't always be toxic. Don't always be negative. Be funny. Be witty. Be engaging. And there's also, stop harassing female boxing fans in the fucking DMs. Like, they're sending me that shit. So a lot of you are going to get aired out as well if you keep doing it. That's just a warning, yeah? Married or not, I will air you the fuck out. Stop harassing women in the DMs, man. Jesus, have some integrity. And then... That goes to Paulie Balidaji as well. Ha, 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 ha. He's a repeat offender. And then the last one, for broadcasters, Jesus, just demand more from these promoters. Just demand more, and they don't deliver it, refuse to pay. I like where we're going right now. I think this lockdown has forced a lot of heads of sport to realize they were getting a shit deal because now they're stuck for content ideas. So they're like, well, we need to revisit this. So I think that's broadly it. We just, we need to do this better because it's not making sense right now. You know, I take my podcast as an example. Like I say many times, I know the numbers, right? So, so I can estimate that this one might do, uh, depending on how people connect with it, this might do 1,300 spins, 1,500 spins. I don't know. Something like that, right? 
How many people, when I post up the link, are going to like and retweet this? I can tell you. It'll be about 15 likes and about 7 retweets. So, if you imagine that the people, the 7 people that retweeted also liked it. That's, excuse me, that's a handful of people. That's like 1% of people engaging with it and going, actually, do you know what? I'm going to rate this guy for putting this out there. Now, Everyone's listening to this point. I'm going to ask you a question. Why wouldn't you like and retweet? It doesn't cost you anything. Why wouldn't you say, do you know what? I just listened to this while I was walking the dog. I really enjoyed it. Maybe you will really enjoy it. But I've always had this theory that boxing fans are like fans of transsexuals, right? You take, you take, you take great pleasure in the thing, but you almost don't want to tell your friends and family this is what you really like. I think people are almost embarrassed to go, yeah, I'm a boxing fan. I don't know why. I, I, I don't, there's no shame in it. And that's how I imagine it is. I imagine boxing is like your dirty little secret. So if you share that on your social media, you worry that people think negative, negatively of you. But the truth is, if you ain't got the courage to be yourself in front of your, your nearest and dearest, man, like the problem's not with the podcast. The problem's with you, my friend. So I'm going to ask this question again. How is it that we're getting 1,500 listeners and so few retweets and likes and so forth? It baffles me. But for all those that do, thank you. Because it's noticed and it's appreciated. And that's the important thing. But like I said, this is why I'm cynical about boxing fans. Because I'm like, you have no qualms about retweeting responding and liking when Eddie Hearn does something. Oh my God, Eddie, you're amazing. You're this, you're that. We put a podcast out. You'll listen to it pretty much end to end. And then you'll just be like, nah, I'm not going to like that. I'm not going to retweet it. But it, that doesn't make any sense. You've invested, by the time we've done this, Riku, it'll be an hour and a half, right? You've invested an hour and a half yeah. of your life. All I'm asking you to do, yeah? Seven seconds. Hit the heart button. Hit the retweet button. Scroll on. That's all. Hit that, hit that, scroll on. Seven seconds. You've done an hour and a half right. by this point. Yeah, I guess we could do a social experiment uh, where we ask, or I'll ask everybody, if you've listened to this and you've liked it, please retweet and share. Uh, you guys will know what Terry's uh, Twitter handle is, at Highfield Boxing, and all you need to do is just like it, retweet, share, maybe comment on what parts he didn't like or agreed with this a lot or didn't agree with, and maybe even write where you listen to this, whether during the lockdown, and then we'll see how many people actually take this to heart and how many people don't. But, yeah, I think uh, for me to end it, uh, thank you, Terry, for giving us the content over the last few weeks when we've all been locked down. I personally appreciate the time that you put towards this podcast and all the guests you've got on, so... You know, we've had a few really great episodes with Big Don Smith. Um, I particularly like that one. Um, and, you know, you've had lots of good guests on recently. Don't forget and, Denzel. Yeah, Denzel was brilliant. I love you two on Instagram Live as well. <laughs> but, yeah, Denzel, Big Don Smith, everybody else. And you've provided us with good content. So all I ask for the fans to do is to share and like this. It doesn't cost you anything. We get the word out. More people will subscribe and support Terry in his efforts because he brings a lot of uh, enthusiasm, laughter, 
uh, over the over these kind of challenging times. So please do support Terry and retweet and like this podcast. And guys, please stay at home. Please. Like, that's one of the reasons I've upped the output. Like, really, like, during the lockdown, I was like, let me just leave it. Like, you know, boxing's dead. What the hell are we going to do? And then it dawned on me that, look, we're all going to be set at home, right? And one of the incentives we need to, to comply is that at least there's shit we can be getting our teeth into. Now, Anthony Yard's lost his dad and his grandmother to this. I'm not saying that that was because people were reckless. I don't know. My friend Dan Parker's lost his aunt. Like, big shout out to Dan. One of my, I mean, one of the people I respect most in the sport. And it's a reminder. Look, if we keep acting like it's not going to affect us, it's going to affect us. So if you can stay home, stay home. Look, I'm not saying to people don't go for a run. I'm not saying to people don't walk the dogs. What I am saying is don't have eight or nine people around a fucking barbecue, please. Don't be out there in the sun with your Bluetooth speaker and there's like loads of you just drinking your Blossom Hill or whatever it is. This, this ain't the time for that. We've all got elderly relatives and I tell you this now, man, like if my mum my mum catches this, like a lot of people have hell to pay. I don't even care who they are. Like anyone I see out might just get something over their head. This isn't the time to be, oh, I'm rebellious. I, I don't conform. Just conform, man. There are more serious people than you on this earth that are conforming. Jesus, even Eddie's conforming. Everyone's conforming. Because we don't want our elderly relatives to die needlessly or to die before their time. So I'm asking, please, if you've listened this far, just stay in. There's nothing out there. Pubs are shut, clubs are shut, shops are shut. Like I go running like probably four times a week. There's nothing to look at. That is hard work. Just stay in. Stay home. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that point. Uh, the longer, this will go on for a very long time unless people comply. And I think it's at a point of national unity. I mean, I'm not even from this country, but just for the sake of everyone and for people being able to get back to work and earning proper money, people being able to get off furlough, it's important that everybody stays in and just listens to the guidance from the government and hopefully we'll get through this in a few months. But the longer people don't comply, the longer this will go on. Mate, you're absolutely right. And that's probably the right point to, to sign off on. So guys, if you listen this far, thank you. I know it gets a bit heated at some points in this podcast, but we're not about sugarcoating, never have been, never will be. So what you've heard on here is what we both feel. And like I said, man, if you enjoy it, this is your time to demonstrate because, listen, everyone's got better uses of their time. And if, if the engagement level isn't there, then, you know, I'll leave you guys to listen to, to those other podcasts. You know, you pound for pound, you can do that. Why not? Go, go and jump on all of those. So that, that's entirely up to you. Um, I just want to thank Riku because, like, he hit me with this idea and I, I was kind of fatigued from doing podcasts because I think I've done a few. And I was like, oh, am I going to do another one? And then like when he, when he threw the idea, I was like, you know what? Let's go for it. Let's see where we end up. So I'm glad I did it, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sure we'll do another one. So, you know, don't use up all your questions, Riku. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for tuning in and take care. 